you turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, we're jumping back into our Psalm series. If you weren't with us uh, last summer, we started our summer in the Psalms, and we started working through, starting in Psalm 1, and we just kind of kept working through. We have made it through the first 10, so this morning we are in Psalm 11, and our plan is to just keep chipping away 10, 15 a year, and we'll be done in 10 to 15 years, so... Uh, Lord willing, we'll see. Maybe we'll get ambitious. Oh, man, I, as I'm saying that, I'm thinking of Psalm 119. We've got to come up with a plan for that in my math. But, uh, yes, yeah, so we're jumping back into the Psalms, and it feels good. I was a little bit worried, to be honest. Coming out of Ephesians, I'm like, I love, I mean, I love all of God's Word, but I love Ephesians. I know Ephesians well. It's just kind of been the book I always come back to, and then it was just this looming thing, like, oh, man, jumping back into the Psalms, poetry. I was just feeling the weight last Sunday afternoon when I read through Psalm 11 again. And man, it was such a refreshing, soul-filling week to be back in the Psalms for me studying. So I pray that that would be true for you this morning as well. Just as a reminder, we talked about this a lot when we were going through Psalms the first time. And I just want to bring it back up so we don't confuse anybody. The hope is that by uh, this time together we would see Scripture more clearly, not come out with a foggier picture of it. But we'll see in our passage this morning, as well as uh, many times throughout the Bible, the word that is written, or the way God is described, is written in different ways at different times. And so sometimes we see uh, God translated as God, just spelt out God. We see other times where you know, we see the word Lord, but in small letters, Lord, or we see Lord in all caps. Uh, this morning, uh, we'll be seeing the Lord in all caps. That's the one we ha are dealing with in our passage. But when we look in our English Bibles and we see the word God, we're seeing the word Elohim. This is a more generic word that, although it does show up in parts of the Psalms, much more common is what we'll see this morning, Lord in all caps. Whenever we see Lord written in all caps, what we're seeing is God's personal covenant name. So in the Hebrew, it was written Yahweh, God's personal covenant name. This is by far, again, the most common that we see through the Psalms. Of the 150 Psalms, we see Yahweh, Lord, in all caps, written 695 times. And so Dr. Ian Valancourt, professor just in our backyard at Heritage College and Seminary, he writes this. He says, isn't it telling that in this intimate book of praise and prayer, the most common way that the poets address their God is by his personal covenant name. This name has been used in praise of God since the earliest days of his people. For example, in Genesis 4, it was used by the patriarchs when they addressed God. Example, Genesis 15. And it was used by God when he revealed himself to the patriarchs, again in Genesis 15. However, the full significance of this name was revealed in the exodus from Egypt when Yahweh redeemed his people from slavery. Therefore, the name Yahweh is wrapped up in the covenant commitment God has made with his people. It is the personal name of God that reminds us of his personal commitment to his people's salvation. Valancourt goes on to write, In our approach to God, if the psalmists lead us to employ the personal covenant name of God that is especially wrapped up in our redemption, would it not seem logical to use this name in favor of an impersonal title? And so this is not a hard and fast rule. Again, this is sort of like the disclaimer jumping in here. I want to encourage you that as we look at Psalms like Psalm 11, it would not be wrong to read verse 1, in the Lord I take refuge. That is good. That is right. That is what the words say. That is, there's nothing wrong. I'm not, it's not one or the other. 
But I want to encourage you, too, that it is also not wrong to read, in Yahweh I shall bless you. In Yahweh I shall bless you. It's, again, employing God's personal covenant name that the author of Psalm 11 included. And so, as I read through Psalm 11, just a short one, would you stand with me as I read God's holy and true word that is helpful, and not only helpful, it is needed for us today. Choir master of David, in Yahweh I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrows to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. Yahweh tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take a seat. Psalm 11. Do you know the feeling of the world crumbling around you? Maybe that's you here this morning. Maybe you feel like the foundations of your life have been absolutely shaken. Maybe they have completely crumbled. They've been destroyed and you don't know what to do. Do you, do you run? Do you hide? What do you do when things crumble around you? That's the question that is asked in Psalm 11. If we look in the middle of Psalm 11, verse 3, we see that this is a psalm that doesn't shy away from the big and tough questions. This is a psalm that gives us answers to the big and tough questions. Verse 3 says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? When the world around us is crumbling, when all that I've put my hope in vanishes, how should I respond? In other words, when crisis strikes, how can the Christian respond? And so that's the question I want you to ask yourself this morning, Christian. It's that foundation-shaking question that Psalm 11, verse 3 asks. We live in a broken world because of sin. And so it's essential that we know how we you know, instinctually want to respond and also how God's word calls us to respond. And if you aren't a Christian here this morning, this question absolutely applies to you as well. Because I'm confident that you know this reality too. You know the brokenness of our world. You know when all things feel lost. You know when things crumble. You know what it feels like to be left questioning, what am I supposed to do? And so let me assure you that the Bible gives us answers. The Bible gives us hope when we ask these very real and very hard questions. And so Psalm 11 isn't too cryptic. It's pretty clear. It's a clear truth for us this morning. But as we talk about often, just because the solution is simple does not mean that it's easy. This is good news for us today, friends. This is good news because there is hope. 
there is good news. Chaos and crisis will strike. That's the bad news. But the big idea from Psalm 11 is that when crisis strikes, find refuge in Yahweh and behold his face. The big idea from Psalm 11 is that when crisis strikes, find refuge in Yahweh and behold his face. And as we work through this, we'll see that, yes, a broken world does bring chaos. It does bring crisis. But we'll also see that our sovereign God is in control and therefore a refuge. That's what gives us confidence. Those will be our points this morning, looking at crisis, God's control, and therefore our confidence. So first, our broken world brings crisis. I'm sure you can all think of times in your life or in history where things got a little bit unpredictable and the world kind of went squirrely, right? I'm thinking, let's back it up, 22 years, Y2K, right? Anyone my age or older remembers Y2K. If not, uh, Y2K was this, the dreaded Y2K virus. Now, we hear, hear viruses a lot today. This is not this kind of virus. It was the ominous reality that many computers and systems only had two digits for the year date. And so when the year turned from 1999 to 2000, computers would be confused. Is it 1900? Is it 1800? Is it 2000? It's just they don't know. They didn't have a category for this. Someone didn't think of it. So at the turn of the millennium, everyone thought computer mayhem would ensue. They feared that legitimately major banks, governments, utilities would collapse. And this was a legitimate concern. It sounds a little silly right now. A legitimate concern. Even me as a child at the time remembers the steady discussion leading up to the new year. But I also remember we were okay at the rec residence because we must have bought our first computer in 1999 because there was a sticker on it that says Y2K protected. So <laughs> fear not. The governments may crumble, but the rec residence will stand. No. Uh, but it was predicted that really bad things could happen. This glitch could legitimately cripple society. It ma demonstrated a massive weakness in our armor. And so people began to hoard. They began to prep. You know, remember the preppers. Uh, people began to panic and even try to flee out of the major cities. And so what happened? Nothing. Nothing really happened. Some stuff happened. But all this hype and prep and worry seemed Worry seemed to amount to nothing. And it's a good example of how easily we can slip into panic mode. How easily we can freak out when crisis looms. This is sort of our nature in crisis mode, right? We, we realize pretty quickly, we think we've got a pretty good handle on things. But we realize when crisis strikes that we don't have as much control as we thought. We see how living in a world in all of its brokenness brings crisis. And so as we look at Psalm 11, that's sort of the context, that's sort of the vibe we feel, much more serious than a silly Y2K virus. But look at how Psalm 11 starts. David makes a plain statement that sets the stage for the rest of the psalm. He says, in Yahweh I take refuge. That's sort of like the thesis thing. We've got to remember that as we work through the whole psalm. This refuge language isn't new. We've seen it already a few times last summer as we worked through the first few psalms, and we'll see it many, many, many more times as we work through the psalms and through all of God's word. That's the truth that we start from, that God is our safe place. 
God is our safe place. But pretty quickly, you've already read through this. You know where it's going. He says, in Yahweh take refuge. But how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. The crisis is acknowledged in verse 2. There's an initial question that is asked that can leave us scratching our heads a little bit. Right? It's left scholars scratching their heads. The big question of this, of the, the, the question of the question in verse 1, which is how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? Is this, this David, is he talking to himself? Is he kind of asking himself a rhetorical question? Like, you know, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? How can, how can I say flee? Or maybe this is advice from outside counsel. That's what some other people say. They say uh, this is advice to David saying there is a threat. Run away. And David's responding, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? Or maybe this is the oppressors taunting David. Many scholars think this, even just from the grammar of this text, that you could read it essentially as the oppressors taunting him, saying, why don't you fly away like a little birdie? Why don't you run away? So David asked the question, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? Each of these could be a correct reading. But the conclusion, no matter whether it's David's self-talk, whether it's counsel from outside, or whether it's taunting from his oppressors, is that this is bad advice. Verse 2 makes it pretty clear that sometimes fleeing is not possible. Sometimes fleeing is the appropriate tactic. But in this case, the enemy is at the gate, the assault, whatever it is, the crisis has struck. The bow is bent. The arrow is on the string. They shoot from the dark. The language is strong. It's definitive. It's ominous. And we don't know what crisis in David's life sparked this psalm. Some are very clear. Some psalms we see is explicitly clear. Oh, this is when, you know, Absalom was being a brat. Other times, we don't know. It's kind of vague. And this is a vague one. We don't know what crisis in David's life sparked this psalm. Whether this was a physical threat or metaphorical arrows of slander and verbal attack that we see David grieve over throughout the Psalter. But what we do know is that they fire from the dark. Whether that's a place of evil intent or supposed cover and safety, or both. And so the setting here, at the beginning of Psalm 11, is that crisis has struck. That it's futile to flee. And so that's the futility that is in that question. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. That is the setting. And so who here knows this feeling? Who here knows the feeling of having somebody give you advice when crisis strikes and it takes everything that is in you not to scream back, how can you say, how can you say it'll be okay? The diagnosis we got was definitive. How can you say, ah, shake it off. That slander against me has started a fire that's out of control. How can you say, oh, maybe there's something positive about it? How can there be something positive about a lost job, a lost identity, or a lost loved one? This is the anguish that we hear in the tone of verse 1. And this is what we know about ourselves if we hold up the mirror, that it is our nature and desire to flee when crisis strikes, but escape is not always an option. Sometimes, sometimes crisis 
infects and affects every sphere of our life. The crisis and chaos that sin brings seeps into every corner of your life. And so what then? When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Have you asked yourself that question? God, I'm trying to be faithful, but the world is crumbling around me. What am I supposed to do? How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. Do you feel the weight fall off your shoulder when the psalmist gets to to verse 4? Because he acknowledges that, yes, a broken world brings crisis. But we see right where he beelines in verse 4. And that's our second point this morning, that our sovereign God is in control. sovereign God is in control. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Yahweh is ruling from heaven. The psalmist calls out in angst, but he affirms that God is sovereign, that God is in control. He is on his throne and he sees. Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. Affirming that God is in control does not mean that you just grin through the inevitable crisis. Lament is a very appropriate biblical category that we don't talk about enough. Look at Jesus himself. He wept when his friend died, even though he knew he would raise him from the dead. Jesus, too, as we considered last week, he prayed in agony in the garden. He knew God's plan. He, he knew better than anyone God's sovereign control. He had the perfect desire to do the will of the Father, but that still didn't remove the weight of obedience that Jesus was carrying and anticipating when he would take on himself the sin of humanity. But he still, what did he say? We talked about this last week. Father, not my will, but yours be done. And so this is the similar scope, similar sphere that this psalmist is looking at here the good news that the psalmist rests in, the same hope that you and I can have today when crisis strikes. God is in control. God is in control. We often overestimate the amount of control that we have, but the more that we learn about God, the more we can appreciate and understand the fact that God is the one that's in control. We can appreciate that he is sovereign. When I was a kid, my dad had this big old truck. It was not a fancy truck. One time it caught fire and he somehow got it back going again. It was, it was not like, don't, it's not like, yo, my truck. It's like, this was just a work truck. But he had this big old truck and I loved it. It was just like, this is the coolest truck. But one of the best parts about it was that on the dash, there was the most enticing switch. It was an orange switch, no label. And so we called it the booster switch booster switch and so if we were running Saturday errands I was sitting on that big bench seat in his big truck and I would ask can I switch the booster switch can I press the booster button and sometimes he'd say yes but he'd say Aaron 
be careful. If you press it for too long, the truck will lift off. So I would do it. I would press the switch as long as I dared. I would feel the truck accelerate as I was pinned into the bench seat. I couldn't believe the control that my dad had entrusted to me. What power. Of course, I didn't have as much control as I thought. The switch did nothing except for engage an orange LED. It was a plow truck, so it probably had something to do with the plow, but I would click the button and it would turn brighter orange. That's what the switch did. So yes, I did have some control. I did flick the switch, but my dad's right foot did all of the boosting. And of course, this was good news. I couldn't have handled that responsibility. I couldn't even drive. And I certainly couldn't be trusted to control the booster switch. If I did, I probably would have tried to see if the truck really would lift off. And we find ourselves in a similar position as we consider what it means to trust God. It is good news that he is the one that's in control. We may not understand it at the time. I really thought this was a real booster switch. We may not understand it at the time, but the good news is that in life, it is God who controls things, and we are comparatively switching on LEDs. Affirming that Yahweh sits enthroned in crisis, and yet he sees the crisis, though, leads us to another dilemma. It leads us to another kind of personal tension, and maybe you're feeling that here this morning. If God, who is supposedly in absolute control, and he sees the crisis of the crumbling world around me. When I'm saying the foundations are destroyed, oh yeah, God, good thing you saw. Yeah, it's crumbling. Why doesn't he stop it? Why doesn't he give me wings so that I can fly away? But God being sovereign, God being in control is not something that the Bible is silent on. And thinking about God being in absolute control it's one thing that we can admit takes internal wrestling. It takes a lot of trust. It takes a lot of faith. And we need to acknowledge that God is absolutely in control and we aren't. And that's a good thing. Tim Keller helped me. I don't know him personally, but he helped me with this illustration that I heard this week. Imagine a loving parent and their child in conversation. And the parent is telling their child, we have to move across the country and the child is, is hurt, saying, I'm going to lose my friends. Like, they're upset. And of course, the parent knows this. The parent acknowledges this. They see the, this wound. They see the crisis that their child is facing. And they don't want to make light of it. But the parent also knows that the move that they are doing is for their child's good. Whether it be a safer community, whether it be better schools, whether it be closer to family support, whether it's a better opportunity but it's not until the child is older that they can understand that it is for their good, even if it stings. All they can do is think of their friends. That is the crisis that they are facing in that moment. And I don't say this or use this illustration to make light of the very real crises that you're facing. I know most of you, I know many of you are facing real crises now, today. I want you to rest in the fact that so much more vast is the difference between a sovereign God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, and us than even a loving parent to their child. Whether we see it or not, whether we know it or not, we can rest in and trust in the fact that God sees, God knows, God 
cares. He is doing work for your good. He is doing work for his glory. And whether we see it or not, even in this life, he is at work. That's how we can rest in that, that big idea point I said at the beginning. When crises strike, find refuge in Yahweh and behold his face. David reminds himself of that truth when he comes to verse 4. In Yahweh, uh, Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. Yahweh not only sees, but he also tests. He tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. This was the verse I read on Sunday afternoon that I was like, oh yeah, we're back in the Psalms. What, what, do, I, what do I do here? This language can be hard to wrestle with. This is similar to other language that we see where judgment is sure. It seems to be the imagery that the psalmist is conjuring up here saying judgment is sure. It specifically reminds us of destruction like we see in Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. But what's the statement there? The statement there is God is just. God will act. And so David is facing crisis. He is facing assault. But he trusts that God will, in God's way, in God's time, act. And so we too can rest in the fact that Yahweh is in control. That although crisis will come, that the enemy shoots from the dark, God sees. God sees. He sees them. He sees us. And whether in this life or in the end, he is just and he will act. There is no denying that, like the child in our illustration, there is real hurt real brokenness, real crisis in the world today and in our lives today. But this isn't the end of the story. God is working for our good and for his glory. We can rest in the fact that he sits enthroned in heaven. He does see and he will act. And so living in a broken world, we will know crisis. But we can rest in the fact that our sovereign God is in control. And we see that our hope is in God. He is our refuge. Remember that first line? And that is our confidence. And so that's our third point this morning. Our refuge in God gives confidence. Verse 7. For Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. That's our hope. Our hope is that we are not but the Lord is righteous. This is the hope of the gospel that's even clearer from our vantage point than it could have even been for David at the time. Because we have all sinned, we have all positioned ourselves against God. We have each turned our own way. None of us can stand under the seeing and the testing of the Lord on our own merit. If we click flip back a couple pages, we've talked about how the first few psalms are the kind of gateway to the psalm. We look at Psalm 1 where there's contrasted the, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. In Psalm 1 verse 5, it says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. 
because we've all sinned, our sin positions us in such a way that we are unable to stand. We are spiritually bankrupt. But the good news of the gospel is that God knew this. He knew this, and so he would send his own son into the world, Jesus Christ, to come and live the truly righteous life. And he wouldn't come to just wave a mighty finger and rule from a high place, but he came as a humble, suffering servant, one who would stand in our place and take the ultimate testing to have the full weight of humanity's sin be the portion of his cup. And on this Sunday, known as Palm Sunday, we think about Jesus' humble and triumphant entrance into Jerusalem. But the undertone of that entrance into Jerusalem was what he knew he was willingly walking into. He was walking towards the bent bow. He was walking towards that bow that was fitted with arrows, arrows that would hit the only one, to use the psalmist's language, the only one who was truly upright in heart. And he did that to take the place of all who would turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation. Those that would look to him and therefore be credited with his perfect righteousness. That is the only way that you and I can be counted as righteous on the merit of Christ's blood that is shed for us. And this sacrifice is enough. Again, we celebrate every Lord's Day, and particularly next Sunday, that Jesus didn't stay dead. The just wrath of God was satisfied when he died and when he rose from the dead. He demonstrated that death could not even hold him. That is the hope of the gospel, and that is the refuge that we find in God. The gospel is more than an insurance policy, though. It could be tempting to think, yes, Aaron, I'm with you. Life can be brutal at times. I know crisis, man. I know it. And refuge sounds good. Everybody wants a savior. But we, re- we need to wrestle with what it looks like for Jesus to not only be our savior, but also to be the Lord of our life. We need to not only run to God as our refuge, we need to, as we see in verse 7, behold his face. Derek Kidner writes this. If the first line of this psalm showed where believer's safety lies, the last line shows where his heart should be. God as refuge may be sought from motives that are all too self-regarding, but to behold his face is a goal in which, the only, uh, in which only love has an interest. To behold God in all his glory is beyond all that we could ever ask for or imagine. But this is what is revealed in Christ. As Trevor read for us earlier, when the word became flesh, God's glory became visible in a way it had never before, that, that Christ incarnate would be the confidence of his people, that when he entered into that city, people beheld him. When he entered into Jerusalem, they beheld him. They waved palm branches. They said, Hosanna. This is our Savior. This is our confidence. This is our hope. And it's that same hope that we rest in today. The hope of the gospel is that because of the merits of Christ, we can approach God. We can have a relationship with God. We can behold his face. And God's own character of of perfect righteousness and Christ's righteousness, that's credited to us. That's the hope of the gospel. That is our only confidence. 
And so all the fear and all the frustration that tempts David to flee in verses 2 and 3 are answered in the hope of verse 7. So Christian, all the fear and all the frustration that tempts you to flee in the crises of your own life are answered in the hope of the gospel. All the fear, all the frustration that you feel is answered in Christ. And so what's the message of Psalm 11? What is the message of Psalm 11? What does it mean for us today? When we ask the question, when the foundations of all that we have put our hope and trust in crumbles around us, what can I do? Well, the answer is trust in God who sits enthroned. He is in control and find refuge in him who is your confidence. Rest in the finished work of Christ. Look to him. Friends, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for your word that doesn't soft pedal the fact that crisis is real. That the brokenness of our world brings chaos. And God, we thank you for that honest question that we can ask. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? God, we thank you that you are righteous. That you sent your son to be perfectly righteous for us. So that we can honestly ask this question and we can honestly find hope in the promises of your word to find refuge in you and to turn our eyes to you, to fix our eyes on you, our Savior. God, would you write this truth on our hearts that when the crisis comes or if the crisis has come, we would rest in you completely. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.